Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this world choke it out, but that as seed sown in good ground it may bring forth 30, 60, 100 fold fruit as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so the question of identity, who we are, saw that the world and even our own flesh tends to want us to look inward to the self, but God's word commands us to look outside of ourselves. We look to Christ to find meaning and value and significance and joy and purpose. We saw that we were counted righteous in Christ. So through faith, our sins are forgiven credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, justified, declared in the right. And so our identity is in Him. We are the circumcision, the people of God, the community of the new covenant. We worship by the Spirit. Our identity is not self-created. It's divinely given. That's who we are. The standing of righteous through faith. But that's the foundation. We don't stop there. Foundations are meant to be built upon. Luther described us as being simul justus et peccator in Latin. At the same time, righteous and sinful. That's where we are. Our sins are forgiven, no condemnation, yet we are still battling remaining sin. And so we don't just stop at justification. We build upon it. It's the foundation. Now we get to work, not to gain the love of God, but because we already have the love of God in Christ. Philippians 2 says we work out our salvation for, because, here's the ground, it is God at work in us. The way we can think about it in terms of grammatical terms is the indicative mood versus the imperative mood, right? The indicative mood states a fact. The cat is on the mat. It's telling what is. It's who we are in Christ, declared right. But the imperative then is built upon that, what we are to be. What we are to be, the imperative, is always built on the indicative of who we are. In other words, we start with our position and then have practice. We now work not for a position, but from a position. Or in many ways, we could say now our job is to become what you are. What is your job? To become what you are. You're a saint. So who are we to become? And this is the beautiful thing about identity. You're never stuck. Our identity is not static. Praise God. And you, likely like me, have not yet arrived. Our sanctification, our growth in grace is sometimes painfully slow, isn't it? It's hard to watch your own sanctification. In fact, the way I tell my people back in Texas is you've got to look some years out. You look at six months, can you see maturation and spiritual maturity? Probably not. Even a year ago, do you feel like you're closer to the Lord now than a year ago? Can you see progress? Maybe, hopefully. But three years ago, okay, now I see some significant process. Sometimes our own sanctification is like watching the grass grow. It can be painfully slow. I resonate with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who says, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. There is, Paul puts it in Philippians 3, we haven't obtained it. We're not already 
perfect, but we press on to make it our own because Christ has made us his own. One thing I do, forget what's behind, straining toward what lies ahead. That's the goal. Our identity is in process, praise God. He doesn't leave us where we are. And so we need to change. Just a quick book plug over there is a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal book on this process because we need it. You can change and you need to change, right? I mean, let me just ask you, how's it going for you? Just a few diagnostic questions. Do you lack joy regularly? Do you have a short fuse? Do you find yourself saying things that you regret? You lack self-control over the tongue? Do you have thoughts that you would be shamefully embarrassed if others knew what you were thinking? Do you regularly lose your temper? Do you carry with you this constant low-grade anxiety with you wherever you go? Do you impulse shop? Are you still tied to the things of this world too much? Do you envy others? Do you look to food or sweets or alcohol or meds for comfort? Do you self-medicate? Are you self-righteous? Do you find yourself filled with cynicism and always fault-finding? Elevating yourself among others, maybe even members of your own church. These are painful questions, aren't they? And we all battle these issues. We all have progress to be made. Theologians call it remaining sin. Sin that needs to be mortified, needs to be put to death. And praise God, He doesn't leave us where we are. Sanctification is progressive. It takes a lifetime. And here's the reality. All of us, are becoming something, someone, at all times. We are being formed every minute of every day. We are becoming someone, intentional or unintentional. Every minute of every day, we are becoming someone. On purpose or on accident, we are all in process at all times. Discipleship of some form is always happening. There really is no sitting neutral in this world. Listen to J.C. Ryle, Anglican Bishop of the 19th century. He says, believe me, you cannot stand still in the affairs of your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day, you're either getting nearer to God or further off. There's just no standing still when it comes to the Christian life. We are either being formed or we, being, or we are being deformed, but formation is the default. Let's turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 22 to 24. Hopefully you're familiar with the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is about God's plan to put all things under Christ. The thesis statement is in chapter 1 verse 10. His will, His purpose, His aim is to unite all things in Christ. He's exalted the Son and He's now putting all things under His rule. And God's right order is being fully restored under the rule of Christ. And that includes a unified church of Jews and Gentiles who are the one new man. 
And then in our own lives, we submit to the rule of Christ. We submit all of life under His authority. And so let's look now in the middle. So Ephesians is really broken down nicely between 1 to 3 and 4 to 6. 1 to 3, indicative, what God has done for us in Christ. 4 to 6, now the imperative, what we are to do in light of what God has done for us. So we're jumping in right in the middle here of the imperative. And let's look again, three calls from Ephesians 4. Put off the old self. Renew your mind and put on the new self. So first, put off the old self. Look with me at Ephesians 4, verse 20. Again, the Spirit through the Apostle. That's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful, desires here's the beauty of the christian identity is you're different you have a new nature when you come to christ that's why we call it new birth you're not the old you and now we're told to put off the old self it belongs to your former way of life that old way remember take a look at chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 where he describes that old way who were we we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. Look over at chapter 4, verse 17. It describes our former manner. Again, writing to the Ephesians. Now this, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Isn't that fascinating? Paul's writing to Gentile Ephesus and tells the church in Gentile Ephesus, you need to quit acting like Gentiles. You don't walk as Gentiles anymore. You're no longer a Gentile. You're now a Christian. Verse 18, they, we were They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the old self, and now we put off the old self with its way of life. We no longer follow the course of this world. We no longer follow the devil, chapter 2. No longer following our own passions, the passions of our flesh. No longer carrying out the desires of the body. Our minds are no longer futile, but now they're being renewed. Our understandings no longer darkens. That's no longer us. That was us. Now we're new. Conversion brings radical change. Really, only Christianity has a category for this. Radical is from that word radix, root. Conversion brings change from the roots. That old, unbelieving identity is corrupt, he says, through deceitful desires. What he said, the desires of the body and the minds. We here get at the heart level. Again, this is the stuff of Christianity. Unlike any other religion, it gets to the desire level, the motive level, the heart level. The heart in the Bible, of course, is a complex figure. It's not just that organ in our body. And this old self had a bad heart, characterized by wrong desires, wrong passions, wrong lusts, wrong wants. So we have to understand that all our outward actions are driven by inward desires. In other words, the way we talk about it in my house, 
is you do what you do because you want what you want. You do what you do because you want what you want. In other words, all actions, even words, Jesus says, flow from the heart, right? In the Bible, the heart is the motivational headquarters for the human person. Just for an example, close to home, Anna mentioned I have five kids, uh, 13 to 6. So hypothetically, if someone were to raise their voice at their children, let's say this, you yell at your child. You, You get angry with your child and you yell at them. That's the outward sin, right? But what was the desire level sin? Well, it could be that she interrupted your plan. Your desire was an interruption-free life. It's a really bad desire, especially if you have children. But that desire was violated, therefore you sinned outwardly. Your desire was to be sovereign, and your child interrupted that. By the way, side note, as C.S. Lewis said, life really is the interruptions. You want to know the true you? The true you is how you respond to interruptions. You can't say amen. you got to say ouch. <laughs> Maybe you wanted comfort and that child's behavior just messed with your comfort. Well, that desire was comfort and the outward sin was the raised voice. Maybe you, maybe it was pride. Maybe you were in public and someone else saw your child misbehave and so you were harsh with them because your pride was poked. Your desire was perfect children. Maybe that was your desire, perfection. Your desire is children who somehow missed out on original sin. And they didn't, and so you responded externally with the harshness. Maybe your desire was sleep. You just wanted eight hours of sleep. And your child had other plans. And so you sinned outwardly because your desire was sleep. You see what I mean, right? The external sin... There's probably as different internal sins in this room as there are people. And that's where we've got to get. You know, in Texas, we have a lot of, at least I do, my yard is filled with weeds. And, uh, but when you mow the grass, it all looks the same. Good grass versus weeds looks the same when you grow it. Well, that doesn't get rid of the weed problem, right? You have to go to the roots. And that is how we've got to fight sin. Flip over to the book of James with me, chapter 1. Verse 14. James 1.14, super helpful verses. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There it is. It's desire and then decision, then death ultimately. So, but it starts at the heart level. He says the same thing in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There's the external. Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? There's the problem. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. So you do what you do because you want what you want. All humans are driven by desire, by the heart. Proverbs 4, the heart determines the course of life. The heart is the causal core of our persons, our motivational headquarters. And these desires of the old way still still pop up, right? And he says they're corrupt. These desires that we are to put away, they're deceitful. And again, this is where if expressive individualism 
says that you need to act on your desires and you need to express your desires, your feelings, and no one else can get in the way. You can see how it really misses this. Those desires are not neutral. In fact, often they're deceitful. They can't be trusted. They will deceive you. Today, the ultimate sin is don't follow your heart. That's the ultimate sin, is to not follow your heart. The world, the flesh, the devil, they say trust your heart. They say go with your desires. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. God says your desires are deceitful. They can't be trusted, right? The prophet Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says the heart is deceitfully sick. Deceitful of all, of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And so in the church, we don't follow our hearts. We're actually leery of our hearts. We're suspicious of our desires. Proverbs 3, do not lean on your own understanding. No, we look to God's word. We don't look inward. We don't follow our heart. We follow God's word. We put off the old self with its corrupt desires. And that's what, again, Augustine so insightfully says that our basic problem is the way he defines sin. It's disordered love. It's disordered desires. We want the wrong things too much. That's what we've got to put off. We've got to put off disordered desires, disordered wants, disordered loves, which is really another way of saying idolatry, isn't it? Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, parentheses, that is an idolater, parentheses closed. Paul defines covetousness as idolatry. Why? Because whatever you want most, covet, is your God. They're the same thing. Whatever you desire more than God is an idol. And so these desires, these this covetousness, which is idolatry, it reflects the motive behind every one of our sins. We've got to get at the, at the motive level, the heart level. What Ezekiel calls the idols of the heart. And friends, again, as many as people there are in this room, there's different inordinate desires, different idols. Maybe you struggle with the idol of approval. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it's beauty and body image or Power or career, money, achievement, things, family, food, love, comfort. Calvin said man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We've got to put them off. We've got to put them to death. That's the command. Put off the old self with its desires. Romans 8 says put them to death. Genesis 4 says sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you. You must rule over it. We have to starve the beast putting off the old self, topple our own idols. Let me ask some helpful diagnostic questions from David Powelson and Tim Keller. If we're going to put an idol to death, we've got to be able to identify it first in our own hearts where we're doing some heart penetration here. What's going on in my own heart? I did what I did. Why did I do what I did? I got short with my child, but what was going on in here? Well, let me ask you some of these questions. Where do your thoughts effortlessly go? What do you daydream about? When you lay your head down at night on the pillow, what, what are you thinking of? Puritan William Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Or maybe think about how you spend money. Think about your budget. What is that which you spend money on 
effortlessly. Just take my money. Those things that you don't talk to your spouse about before you purchase them. What is that thing? The checkbook is a real great revealer of idols. What about your your most uncontrollable emotions? Whether it's anger or fear or despair or guilt or depression or worry and anxiety. What are look at those emotions when you get any of those ways that you just can't quite have self-control. Augustine again said that those types of emotions are smoke from the fire. It's not the fire. Those emotions are the smoke that shows the fire. Those emotions are smoke from the fires rising from the altars of our idolatry. Follow the smoke and you'll see where the idol is. You'll see where that inordinate desire is. You've got to ask these questions. Why am I so angry? Why am I so fearful? What's at the root level? What one thing do you most hope is in your future? Again, maybe it's a career, salary, a house, marriage, kids, successful kids, being loved, being respected, status. What is it that without life would hardly seem worth living? Or again, where do you turn for comfort? Bury yourself in your work, sexual pleasure, food, alcohol, drugs, what is it? We've got to get to the root level. We sin because we believe a lie about what ultimately is going to make us satisfied. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Of course, it's happiness in God, right? Again, Ryle says, you might as well try to make an elephant happy by feeding him with a grain of sand a day as to try to satisfy that heart of yours with rank, riches, learning, idleness, or pleasure. So we put off the old self. We put aside lesser gods for the one true God. We put aside the old self, your former ways, your previous lifestyle. Who are we becoming? Negatively, we put off the old self until the day we die. We will be doing this. It's hard work. Then we have two positives. So number one, we put off the old way. Number two, then we renew our minds. Look at Ephesians 4.23. Let's read 22 again. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And number two, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, the growing Christian, the growing Christian life is the one where the mind is consistently, repeatedly, and progressively being renewed. We no longer walk in the futility of our minds, Ephesians 4.17. Now we are renewing our minds constantly. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world. There's the negative. Positive, but be transformed. And how? By the renewal of your mind. The NLT paraphrases it this way. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The key for identity transformation is a renewal of the mind. Put off, renew your minds. This is how we're not conformed to the world. That's the way Phillips puts it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold because it wants to. Flannery O'Connor said, push back against the age as hard as the age is pushing against you. So again, we are all, every human being is becoming, being formed or deformed at all times 
And so how are we transformed? Well, he tells us right here, by the renewal of the mind. This is why your mind, your thinking is so vitally important. It's the means by which God will transform you through the Spirit. You want to grow spiritually? I hope you do. I think you do. You wouldn't be here. You want to be transformed? Then central to that endeavor is the renewal of the mind by God's truth. This is why you do what you do at this church. This is why the lyrics of the songs are the way they are. This is why the prayers are the way they are. This is why there's a certain way of preaching expositionally through books of the Bible. This is why corporate worship must be prioritized and treasured. This is why we're so Bible-focused. It's why we preach verse by verse. This is why we catechize children. This is why we do family worship at home. This is why we give out books. Because we want to grow. We want to be transformed in the way to do that is to renew our minds. And here's what we have to get when it comes to our thinking. With what enters our mind, again, there is no neutrality. No neutrality in this universe. Either transformation by God or being conformed to the world. That's the options. Transformed, conformed. C.S. Lewis said that every square inch and every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There's no neutrality in this world. And so we've got to go around with our eyes open. This is one of the first steps is seeing that. The things that enter our mind and the things that enter your children's mind, they're not neutral. They have an agenda. So that's the first step is just being awake in God's world. The very famous American novelist David Foster Wallace, very successful unbeliever. He actually committed suicide at age 46, but he's very well known for one particular commencement speech in the United States. And he talks about seeing the water. So he tells a story of a couple young fish swimming by an older fish. And the older fish asks the younger fish, how's the water, boys? And the young fish look at one another and swim by. And they ask, what in the world is water? We've got to be able to learn to see the water. And so we, unfortunately, can't really check out as Christians. We don't have that option. I'm just going to veg out and, and live life unengaged. Well, it's just not an option. We've got to be able to see that there's water around us at all times. This world and the devil, they want to shape your mind and shape your thinking. He's the father of lies. Jesus tells us, Jesus says that his native language is lies. So the enemy wants to lie to you. It's his native language, just like his main thing. He's going to lie to you. So we've got to ask, what are the means by which his lies would get into our ears? And today, maybe more than ever today, we have information coming at us at an all-time high, don't we? Billions of dollars in advertising coming at you on a daily basis with the main goal of distracting you and then keeping your attention. Some studies say that we see up to 4,000 advertisements a day. Think about what an advertisement is. It's trying to sell you on some vision of the good life. And so what we allow into our minds shapes our souls for good or for ill. What we give our attention to will shape who we become for good or for ill. The way grandmas in America say it is garbage in, garbage out. Those grandmas are right. Just ask, what are your entertainment choices? What is it that you watch? For being formed consciences being shaped or perhaps seared. Would you let your 10-year-old join you in whatever you watch? I don't know about here, but a lot of in the States, a lot of people just go home, they're tired, I get it. Turn on Netflix, binge through a series. 
What is it that you watch, though? Are you seeing the water? Are you just vegging out and being shaped by what's on the screen? One way to ask it is, do you watch things on the screen that you would not watch in person? Would you enter your neighbor's bedroom? What makes it different when you watch it on a screen and observe the same activity in your living room? Here's a challenge for you. Next thing you watch, maybe you watch a show, maybe you watch a series, take out a notepad and just take notes. Maybe it's a 30-minute show. Jot down the references to the references and the words and the innuendos that you think Jesus Christ would frown upon. You say, okay, this guy from Texas is just a fundamentalist. But look at the next page in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. See, you're being shaped. You're being formed. Sometimes you're being numbed by your intake. And so how can we renew our minds? Well, today, more than ever, we've got to talk about cell phones, smartphones. We must limit screen input and expand word input. And so we've got to be serious about how we handle screens. We've got to limit screen time. Again, the average American looks at their phones 2,617 times a day. Your phone is forming you. Imagine if you considered Scripture just five meaningful times a day. Just five. Much less 2,600 times. Screens are discipling us. The average American adult watches TV or videos about five or six hours a day. In America, the average millennial is on their phone up to four hours a day. Barna recently showed that millennials spend about 2,800 hours a year consuming digital content. 2,800 hours a year. You know how many of those hours are spent consuming Christian content? 153. 2,800 versus 153. Who's going to win there? Will that be transformation or will that be confirmation, conformation? And so we got to renew our minds. Be aware, be awake, be alert. we got to see the water. we got to curate our inputs and have dominion over our screens rather than letting them have dominion over us. One simple rule would be in the morning when you wake up, Scripture before screen. Be a great principle to take away. Scripture before screen. Many of you probably use your smartphone as an alarm. Maybe you get an old alarm. 90% of Americans, again, sorry for all the American statistics, it's just the air I breathe, that's the water I'm in, but 90%, the first thing they look at is their phone. Right upon waking. And neuroscientists now are confirming what we have here in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12, saying that the last thing we do during the day and the first thing that we do has the greatest neurological impact on the plasticity of our brain. Our phones are literally rewiring and reshaping our brains. And so in the mornings, Scripture before screen. Start with God. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He said, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists in simply in shoving them all back and in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, 
letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. And so start your day with God. There was an article published. The title of the article was, You Have a Shorter Attention Span Than a Goldfish. So according to this, goldfish have a nine-second attention span, and now Americans have an eight-second attention span. Not good for us expositors who preach 45 minutes. But the author points to a Microsoft survey and said that 77%, the vast majority of young adults, reach for their phone first when nothing else is occupying their attention. And so we've got to disciple what's renewing our mind and reach for God's word first. And again, I'm all for smartphones, many, many tools. We've just got to be able to have the self-control to use them rightly. So turn to God's word instead. Renew your mind in God's word and meditate and memorize scripture. Read your Bible. Pray. Come to church. How do we renew our mind? Well, it's the very basic things, right? It's the ordinary means of grace. But I worry in my church, which is very similar to your church, is we have a high view of the Word. But let me just ask, do you actually pray and read God's Word every day? If not, man, get a plan. Get a place, get a plan, and read the Word. Today's the day to start. The Ryle says, tomorrow is the devil's day. Start today. Again, Ryle says this, settle it down in your mind as an established rule that whether you feel it at the moment or not, you are inhaling spiritual health by reading the Bible. And insensibly, whether you sense it or not, insensibly becoming more strong. Renew your minds. Put off the old self. Renew your minds by reading the Word hearing good sermons, reading good books, listening to good podcasts, attending the church when the church is gathering. Look at Ephesians 4.20. Notice how he started. He said, that's not the way that you learned Christ. It's not the way you learned Christ. How did this church here in Ephesus, how did they first learn Christ? Through preaching and teaching, right? How did they learn Christ? Christ never went to Ephesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 of Ephesians. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Jesus preached peace to the Ephesians. Well, how did He do that? He never went to Ephesus because the risen Christ speaks to his church through preachers and teachers as they're faithful to the Bible. As Stott says, how does Christ rule his church? Well, his royal scepter is the word of God. And so we put off the old self, we renew our minds, and third, we put on the new self. Look at Ephesians 4.22 again. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. 
We put on the new self. That word for self may be in your translation. It's literally man. We put off the old man and we put on the new man. And again, the old man is Adam. That's who we were. The new man is the last Adam. It's Christ. Paul actually used this phrase in chapter 2 already. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians 2. Speaking of Jesus again, He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself, here it is, one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So Jesus is the new man who creates the new man, the church, and He gives pastors to His new humanity to teach the saints the Word so that they might do the work of ministry so that the church might grow up to mature manhood. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He's given these shepherd teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we put on this new man, this new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Maybe that word likeness reminds you of something in the Bible foundational Genesis chapter one created in the image and likeness of God and so Jesus is the new man the true image of God and we're to put on the new man and the new image of God and the image of God then in us is being renewed in many ways what Jesus comes to do is make us human again the way we were meant to be the true image of God restores the image in us so we put on the Lord Jesus Christ to put on the new man is to put on Jesus Christ 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the son, the man of heaven. To put on the new self is to put on Christ. That's what it is. The last Adam is the true image. Restoring us to be truly human. Created. Created after the likeness of God. Don't pass that word too quickly. This is new creation language. That's why he says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created to do Good works. New creation. That's your identity. Who are you? You're a new creation. The last Adam remaking us so that we might represent God and rule on His behalf. And so because you're new, status, indicative, put on the new, imperative. And Paul goes on to give just a few examples right there after verse 22. Look at Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, negative, put off, having put away falsehood, put on, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Renewal of the mind. For, here's the reason, we are members of one another. We put off, we renew the mind, we put on. Look down at verse 28. Put off stealing. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, put on the new self, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Renew the mind so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29, put off corrupting talk. With no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good. Put on the new self or building up as fits the occasion. Here's the reason. Here's the renewal of the mind that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, put it off from you, along with all malice, and put on instead, verse 32, kindness to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another, renewing our mind as God in Christ forgave you. Flip over to Colossians 3, it says much the same. Colossians 3, 5. Put off, renew the mind, put on. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice. Notice here, it's an indicative. In Ephesians, it's an imperative. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, what is our identity now? Well, at the end of the day, we are saints. Simul usus et peccator. We're saints, yet we're still battling sin. But here we have already been made right. We've already put off the old and put on the new. In many ways, the call for us is to become what you are. Put off, renew your mind, and put on. How else can we put on the new man? We're in Colossians. Flip a few books over to Galatians chapter 6. Verse 7. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. How do we put on the new self? Well, we don't sow to the flesh. Rather, we sow to the Spirit. Every choice we make, are we asking ourselves, am I sowing to the flesh or am I sowing to the Spirit? We have choices throughout our day. Put off the old, renew the mind, put on the new. We have habits. So are your habits, are your practices, are they sowing to the flesh or to the Spirit? This regular sowing, these, these habits that transform us over time. So start godly habits. Our character really is nothing more than a composite of our habits. Every choice, every choice we make is a vote for the kind of person you want to become. There's really no small choices in that sense. And most of our choices are small choices, right? There's actually very few, three or four big choices that we make. Most of life is in the little moments. It's the little moments that God is after. And so how are you doing? Well, we could ask it another way. Who are you becoming? Augustine said that if we would attain to what we are not yet, you must always be displeased by what you are. For where you are pleased with yourself, there you have remained. Keep adding, keep walking, keep advancing. Again, not in order to gain God's favor by God's grace through the cross. We have that. But we shouldn't be happy. None of us should be happy with the state of our sanctification. If you're happy with the state of your sanctification, you need sanctification more than you realize. But we should see change over the long haul. True faith transforms over time. 
And if you're terribly frustrated with where you are, you see no growth in terms of spiritual maturity, make a change. I urge you, get serious about God. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Or the way marketers put it, every system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it gets. And so maybe you need to make a change if you're frustrated with where you are. What are you doing? What are you doing? Whatever you're doing will give you what you are getting. And so maybe it's time to get a little more serious. Again, remember what Ryle said, you cannot stand still in the affairs of your souls. Every day you will either be getting nearer to God or further away. So is your life structured around the Lord? Putting off the old self and renewing the mind and putting on the new self. Do you have systems that are working? Do you have a trellis for your own life, a rule of life? You've got to make tough decisions so that your life and your habits and your schedule will align with your values. It takes discipline. It takes self-control. It takes a calendar, a life plan, daily rituals. Start every day with word and prayer. Wake up and hear from God. Hear from His Word. Don't start with your phone with terrible news or trivial social media or pressing work emails. Start with God and end with God. Start your day and end your day with the Lord. Husbands, if you're married, pray with your wife. Last thing. Husbands, lead out on that. End your day with prayer. Just thanking God for the day, asking help for the next. Again, I always like to see when sociology or science just confirms what we've always known in the Bible. Neuroscientist Donald Hebb has popularized now. Hebb's Law says that cells that fire together, wire together. What that means for us then is every time we think or do something, it becomes a little easier to do the next time, a little harder not to do the next time. Again, what did Paul say in Galatians? Sow to the flesh and reap corruption. Sow to the Spirit, reap life. We become our habits. Our daily Seemingly inconsequential choices ultimately and eventually shape our character. Choices form character over the long haul. Our moments are our days. And our days are our lives. Again, Lewis, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And so friends, resolve with me to put off the old building practices that will renew the mind and put up walls on things that distort Christian truth and put on the new self. We are saints, forgiven, justified freely by His grace as a gift. But now we are increasingly becoming something. What God wants is for us to increasingly becoming like Jesus. Being remade, to use the title of the book. So not only does the gracious Lord forgive us of our sins, but He makes us new, and that's His promise. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He doesn't stop at forgiveness. That's the foundation. And that's why we sing, be of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Or we sing, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God 
be saved to sin no more. And so who are you? Your fundamental identity is Christ. We are the people of God. We are worshipers. We are created by Him, redeemed. We're filled with the spirits. Who are you to become? Like Christ. Conform to the image of Christ. How do we do that? How do we get there? Put off the old self. Renew your minds. Put on the new self. Again and again and again and again. Through the extraordinary, ordinary means of grace. Word, prayer, church. For our joy, for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the vision of the good life that Your Word gives us, and we pray that we would get serious about You. We're so thankful for the Gospel and the grace that we have in the Gospel, and I pray that we would all ratchet up our seriousness about our pursuit of You, that we would continually want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Would You give us grace to increasingly and continually put off the old self, to renew our minds with Your truth and to put on the new. Give us grace to do it. We ask for Your help. I pray that even a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, that we would make progress for our own joy, the good life, but also for Your glory. Thank You for this food. Thank You for this fellowship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.